Be seated, please. Good morning. Hey. How's it going? I'm good. Hey, did you know it's Valentine's Day on Wednesday? National Single Awareness Day. <laughs> Valentine's Day. National Single Awareness Day. Okay. That's different. Did you buy Tammy a card? I, I have not yet. Okay. But our anniversary was last week, so I, th I think it kind of cancels it out, doesn't it? No. I don't have to worry about Valentine's Day because our anniversary was the week before, right? Okay, you know what you can put in there? Put a scripture reference. Song of Solomon 6, verse 6. It says... Your neck is like the Tower of Babel? No. <laughs> Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, sheep coming up from the washing. Yes. Every one of them has a pair and not one is missing. <laughs> That'll get you places, man. That, that, it's romantic. <laughs> if you need any romance advice, check with Chuck afterwards. He'll get you set. Um, so, Hey, good morning. Welcome. We are glad you are here. Um, we are in a series called The Core. And we have been talking about over the last five weeks um, these core values, these values that we think are so important to us in the life of our church if we are going to continue to move towards our 2030 vision of exalting Christ, encouraging one another, and engaging our neighbor. And these are fundamental. These are um, based just straight out of theology from the very, very beginning. And if you'll notice, we're going back to Genesis a lot because this entire story flows out of that. And so um, the, the first week we talked about the importance of pursuing God together. That your relationship with Jesus Christ is paramount. It is so important. But it's not just you individually. It's us collectively as a church moving together in the same direction. And I think one of the, the mistakes we've made in um, Christianity over the last 100 or 200 years is we have so individualized the gospel that we've lost the magnificence and beauty of it. Because it calls not just individuals to follow Jesus. It calls these individuals to collectively be the kingdom of God here on earth. And so we are pursuing God together as his people. Not just because God saved you, but because God saved us. That we will understand that people matter. People matter to God, his creation, but people, because of that, matter to us. And we want to do everything that we can to love people, to share with people, to be Jesus to people, that we want to see needs and meet needs. We want to be people of outrageous generosity, not just with our money, but with our time, with our resources, with everything that we have. This life was given to us by God, and we want to be good stewards of it. Then last week, we talked about um, circles and not rows and the importance of community. The importance of having some other people who are going in the same direction you are in this journey. That share life with you. That you can talk to and hold you accountable and help you um, do this life together. And we encourage you, if you don't have that, to find that. To start that. We have places on our website, our Shiloh Road Connect app, that you can get connected to a group some way, somehow. Get connected to other people who can help you on this journey. 
This week, we're going to spend some time talking about investing and inviting. The, the, the whole vision as we move towards 2030 is helping us to get outside of these pews and outside of these walls and into a world that we believe is hurting and broken. Um, if you are unaware of that, turn on the news for 10 minutes. And you will be pretty aware that things are not as they should be. And we believe the hope and the message of the gospel is that God is reconciling and redeeming this world. And he has invited us to be a part of that. We get to be a part of what he is doing in this world. And so we are moving to become people who are engaging our neighbors with the love of Jesus Several years ago, we were eating lunch after church at a Mexican food restaurant in Cleburne, Texas. And the waitress brings this plate. And like all waitresses do, just to make sure all the bases are covered, she says, here's your food, but don't touch the plate. It's hot. And so I reach and reposition the plate just like I want it. Not really to reposition the plate, but just to test whether or not it was hot, to find out how hot was hot. And of course, um, this time, most of the time the waitress tells you that, and it's like, eh, it's not really that hot. This time it was hot, to the point that it burned a little bit. And it's funny, there's this inclination inside of us. When someone says, don't do this, that there is this side of us that's like, show you. It's your child when they're three years old. This is not us. This is another family. Your child when they're three years old and you say, don't touch this. Lines create tension. When we draw lines, they create tension. There, there is an internal tension on our behalf to make sure we don't cross the line. Someone says, here is the line, don't cross it. Our inclination is, well, we want to get as close to it as we can without crossing over it. But then there's an external tension. One that comes from outside, it's the allure of it. It's the unknown. Sometimes it's even the other people on the other side of the line watching it. See, here's the problem with lines. The problem with lines is individuals determine where the line actually is. Individuals determine where the line actually is. So in the law, God says to the people of Israel, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the Pharisees, they begin to Think of what that line actually means and where that line actually is. And you can get as close to it as possible as long as you don't cross it. Or do not murder. Don't murder. There, there's the line. Well, that's great. I can get really close. I can do a lot to someone without actually killing them. Or don't commit adultery. I can get pretty close to that line without... But, but what is that line? Is, is it an actual affair? Or is it something that can happen online? Or is it just thoughts 
in your head. Individuals determine where the lines are. And then secondly, individuals determine what lines are important. Individuals will say, well, this line really matters, and this line makes a difference, and this line... See, the law, there's 613 of them in the Torah. 613 in the way the Pharisees saw them lines of don't cross this. Don't do this. Don't go there. And they felt it was their job to enforce on everyone else what the lines really were. But here's what lines ultimately do. Lines create a false sense of security. Because lines can allow you to be all about a behavior and doing it correctly, doing it precisely, and not crossing over it. And never really get to the heart of the reason behind it. See, God came and he gave his people a law, but it was not so that they would just simply follow a law. It was to transform and change these people to make them the people of the kingdom of God. To be different from everyone else. So you know the garden story of sin entering the world, but the very next thing that happens is Cain and Abel outside of the garden, and Cain is angry at his brother Abel, and he kills him. I mean, we have sibling rivalry popping up for the very first time with the very first family. I mean, how many people in your family you've dealt with sibling rivalry? Okay, there's eight people and then a lot of liars. <laughs> but we deal with it. And it's not just sibling rivalry in your actual family inside your home. Look across our nation. We have brothers and sisters everywhere fighting and arguing. And everyone is concerned about the lines. The lines that we've drawn. Lines always create tension. On the football field, you have the line of scrimmage. And your offensive line and your defensive line are battling to control it. And we're from Texas, so you remember the Alamo, right? Remember the Alamo and Travis, General Travis, drawing a line with his sword in the dirt. And we don't even know if this is true. We just heard the story. But he draws a line in the dirt, and he says, okay, cross over the line. And there's this tension, okay, am I really willing to give up my life to fight for this new republic? Am I really willing to give my life and fight? There is a tension there. Kids who are learning to color. There is a tension to learn to stay within the lines as they color. Lines create tension. So we live in this world where Cain and Abel, and there's this obedience thing. And then we have the flood that's the result of wickedness. Then we have Babel, which is all about gods or these people who are arrogant. And you have these three stories that kind of set the tone for this new created world. This world that's been created by sin. And so God comes along and he says, I'm going to start something new. I'm going to do something different than what everyone else in this world is doing. I'm going to call these people to be my people, to be my chosen people. And he says in Genesis 12, 
The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your people, and from your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people, all peoples on this earth will be blessed through you. God comes to Abram, and he says, we're going to do something different. I understand, this is how everyone else lives, but my people are going to be set apart. They're going to be different than everyone else. They're going to live differently, and their life is not going to be consumed by themselves and taking care of themselves. Their purpose is going to become to be a blessing to this world. That this is why I'm setting them apart. This is why I'm making them holy. Because they are going to be a blessing to this world. And so God gives them this law and says, this is how you're going to interact. This is how you're going to live. And it's going to be, the purpose behind this law is going to be to set you apart, to be different. And somewhere in there, the people miss the point. And the purpose of the law becomes not setting them apart and being different and being holy and being sanctified. The purpose of the law becomes obedience to the law. Well, we got to follow the law. we got to make sure we're doing the, the things right. And we got to make sure everyone else is doing it too. And that becomes their purpose. They become the whistleblowers. They become the accusers instead of the advocates. See, God puts you here for a purpose. And that purpose was to bless this world. To bless this world through the grace that Jesus has given you. And sometimes, I wonder if we miss the point. Sometimes I wonder if we get so consumed with doing everything right that we miss the purpose behind doing everything right. The purpose of the law was not to follow the law precisely. The purpose of the law was to form these people into kingdom-shaped people. doesn't mean there's not an importance in doing things the way we believe that are right. But it means there's a purpose behind that. It means there's something that motivates us and drives us to be this people. Because we believe God has done this in our life. He has poured into your life grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And He has called you to live a certain way to bless this world. He is forming citizens of a new kingdom. And the first gospel writer, Matthew, begins where Exodus begins. 
And, and I think Matthew is wanting you to see if he could ever just, I mean, I know you're reading the story, but if he could just jump up and wave his hands and say, hey, Exodus, 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 that's what he's doing as he writes his gospel. Because the gospel of Matthew begins in Exodus. It begins with Jesus going to Egypt and coming out of Egypt. And then going through the water. And through the water he goes into the wilderness. And from the wilderness he's given the law. This is the story of of Moses, but this is also the story of Jesus. Moses comes out of Egypt leading these people, creating a new people, liberating, freeing them from bondage. And he goes through the water, and he finds himself wandering in the wilderness, and then he's given the law. And so as Jesus comes through the water, he's led into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by Satan, and then... He gives the law. And I think our inclination as Jesus gives the law is to say, ha ha, we got new lines. Bigger lines, higher lines, a, a higher bar. But what if Jesus' purpose was not to draw new lines? What if his purpose wasn't to say, here, is the new line. Here's what you have to reach for. So that means I can get right here. What if the purpose wasn't new lines? But it was the purpose behind the law in the first place. To call God's people to holiness. To, to stop chasing over the lines that we draw and pursuing those and instead pursuing Him. So Jesus comes along and He begins this sermon with all these people sitting around. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You will be sons of your Father in heaven. And then he talks about his people being salt and light. The city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that could be seen, not because their ability to follow the law, but their ability to bless the world through the love of Jesus. And then he comes and he says this, that I didn't come to abolish the law. I understand you have this law, and you think I've come to get rid of it and give you a new, I haven't come to abolish it, I've come to fulfill it. And I tell you, until everything passes away, there's nothing that's going to disappear from this law and the prophets, that I am the fulfillment of it, and you're fixing to see that. And then he turns, and he starts talking about how important your relationships with other people are. Which you'll notice is the very thing that happens in the Torah. is God gives the Ten Commandments. 
here's these first four that talk about loving God, and here's these next six that talk about loving your neighbors, your spouse, your friends. And in this law, the people became so consumed with keeping it, they lost sight of the formative power of it. Jesus is not simply calling you to be a law keeper. He is calling you to be a person who is set apart and holy. And whose perception of the world is not based on how close we can get to the line. But abandoning our perception of the line to fully pursue Him. In the Torah, specifically in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, this word rea is used 49 times. And the word rea is neighbor. That God, through His law, is forming people. And He continually comes back to this idea of loving your neighbor. Why are you here? Why are you a people who is set apart? Because you're going to be a blessing to this world. You're going to interact. You're not going to exist simply for yourselves. You're going to exist for blessing this world. You have a bigger purpose And so Jesus, in His new law, in this Sermon on the Mount, He finishes with this powerful passage. And He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the line. That, That was the line. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't cross it. So you can love your neighbor, and you can hate your enemy. It's okay to go there. But then Jesus comes with this powerful, powerful statement. He says, no, I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what, what are you doing more than everyone else? Everyone can do that. And I think maybe the most formative passage in all of the gospel is right here. Is what does it mean to love people? Jesus says, okay, love your neighbor. And then he moves into this powerful prayer where he says, God, I want you to help me to forgive as you have forgiven This is how I want my people to pray. Forgive as we have forgiven. And then, in the most beautiful display imaginable, we have Jesus on a cross looking down on the very people who put him there, who are torturing him and killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them. That he embodies the very words he prays. And he says, I want my people 
to embody my love and my forgiveness. I want my people to forgive and to love people as I have done. The the very one who said his people are going to be this city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden, is placed on a hill, and as that light dies saying, Father, I am loving my enemies by forgiving them. And Father, I want you to form me. to that type of person. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like a forgiving community of forgiven sinners. That's poured out from the outstretched arms on a cross. Who says, Father, forgive these people. Paul, in the book of Romans, picks up on this idea. And he says in chapter 13, Let no debt remain outstanding. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. If your theology, if getting the lines right ever becomes more important than loving others, you have a bad theology that love is the fulfillment of the law love is the purpose behind the law it does not mean well it doesn't matter no it does God has called you to be holy he has set you apart but he has done so so that you would pursue him He has done so so that you would be formed in His image. And He says this, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, whatever other commandment there may be, are all summed up by this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And he goes on to say this. And do this understanding at the present time. The hour has already come from you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. One of the things throughout all of these letters, Paul is continually calling people to live out their baptismal identity. 
more than he talks about, here, you need to be baptized, he talks about, okay, if you are the baptized, if that is your identity, if you have put on Christ, then what does it mean to be his people, to be formed in his image, to be his community, to be the kingdom? He is so consumed and concerned with us living out that identity that you're shaped and you're formed by Christ. And if you want to look for a single point to shape your life around, look to the cross and, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Because in that moment, Jesus takes all the evil it could possibly throw at him. And instead of responding to hate with hate, as we are so easily inclined to do, he responds to hate with love. He says, it stops here with me. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be that city on a hill. I am going to forgive as we have been forgiven. I am going to be this type of people, this kingdom-shaped person. And the question is are we, as followers of Jesus, being formed by him? See, he doesn't just quit and say, okay, it doesn't matter how you live. In fact, he says the exact opposite. He says because it matters so much how you live. Don't Don't conceal yourself in the darkness. Don't be consumed by doing evil. He says, so let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Then he says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. It is not about the lines. The, The purpose of the lines, the purpose of the law, was to form people, to shape them, And this new creation has come forth not out of obedience, but out of death and resurrection. And in Romans 8, Paul says, I'm not, or Jesus isn't abandoning his creation, he's liberating it. He's setting it free from its bondage, he's setting it free from death and decay. That's why there is the forgiveness of sins. The the result of sin is what? Death. And if you are resurrected, you are set free from that death. That is why forgiveness of sins exists. Because you have been set free from the bondage that held you captive. You have been resurrected into new life. So clothe yourself in Christ. What does that mean? It means to put Christ on in every way, shape, or form you can. By loving people. And the word he uses here is agape. And I I think it's funny, this is like the only Greek word that every single person in our church becomes a Greek scholar. Oh yeah, we know that. 
Dallas Willard, the philosopher, says familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Basically, we become so accustomed to something and hearing about it that it loses all of its meaning. We talk about love. And we define love in so many different ways in our culture. But what the gospel writers do, what the writers of all the letters do, is they continually point to this moment on a cross where the love of God is literally poured out. That it's not a selfish love, it's a self-giving love. It's a selfless love. That says, I'm going to lay my life down for everyone else. I'm going to place the needs of everyone else above my own. John, in his epistle, says that this is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And that we should lay down our lives for others. God is calling you. He is calling you out of the darkness and into the light not to just simply follow a set of rules. But He's calling you out to form you into a person who is shaped by the cross. Who looks like and embodies the kingdom of God. Who lives in this present world in a way that makes sense in this age to come. That he keeps talking about this present world that's passing away and this new world that's coming. And he says, now that you are in Christ, now that you've clothed yourself in him, now that you're learning to love as he does, start living like you are a part of this new world and not like you still belong in this old one. Live as people who have promise and who have purpose and who have been set apart and who are holy and clothe yourself with him in love and compassion and forgiveness and embody Christ. Christ on the cross. That is what you and I are called to do. That is who we are called to be. Not people who just simply follow the rules. I just want to ask this morning, have you lost sight of that? Because it seems like looking at our world, it's so easy to get in a battle over the lines. Well, they're Democrat, they're Republican, they're Libertarian. They're... We got enough labels, we got enough people. We have enough people accusing and pointing fingers and blaming. We have enough of that. And you want to know where that spirit comes from? That is the spirit of Satan, the accuser. But there's another spirit who is indwelling in us, who is literally filling us and pouring out of us, and it's a Holy Spirit. And Jesus calls that Spirit the Advocate. Stop drawing 
the lines. Because that spirit who is an advocate, regardless of what side that person is on, is calling you to love them. And that may mean some really difficult conversations with people about what they believe. But one of the things that Jesus does is he comes and he says, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're really good about that as long as they're like us and think like us. But what about when they don't? What about when they're not like us? That might mean some difficult conversations. But it's done in love and not out of arrogance or fear. It's done because we sincerely love people. So I want to talk for just a minute about what does it look like to invest and invite because if, if the very, the, the farthest point Jesus asks you to go is loving your neighbors, or is loving your enemies, then loving our neighbors, at least those that we like, should be pretty simple. But he's not just calling you to love the people you like. He's calling to love the people who hurt and persecute you. And if you have a problem, that's not me, that's Jesus. That's what he says his people are going to look like. See, we grow not by asking God to give us faith, but by stepping out in faith. Try it. Try to forgive. Try to love when it's really hard. That's where you grow in your faith. So I want to give you three kind of signs Because one of the things we want to be about is investing and inviting. Investing in the lives of people and inviting them into the journey with us. No matter where they are, inviting them to come and to check out these claims of Jesus. To, To see what this new life is about. Inviting them to be a part of his kingdom. Because that's what you were invited into. You were invited. He said, come follow me. And you came to follow him to be a part of the kingdom to be builders of the kingdom. So here's these conversational pieces, kind of triggers that I want you to start listening for as you have conversations with people. Because I think they are great opportunities for you to invite someone into the journey. First, you have a conversation with someone and it's, I'm not from here. We just moved here, not from here. I don't really know anyone. We hadn't found anyone. Hey, you should come to our church. Hey, you should come to our small group. Hey, you should come to this men's deal we do. Hey, you should come to this women's deal we do. I'm not from here. I don't know anyone. I don't have relationships. That's one of the easiest ways people connect with churches because they're looking for relationships. So you hear someone say, I'm not from here. Hey, you should come to our church. Come join us. Come be a part of us. You're having a conversation with someone and they say it's not going well. Oh, man. We, we lost our job. We're searching. We don't know what we're going to do. Hey, you should come to our church. Come, come, come join us. We'll pick you up. Come eat with us. Come fellowship. Come hear about what Jesus is doing through us in this community, in this world. 
and the last one I wasn't prepared for. Oh, man. We have a, a child going into middle school, and I was not prepared for that. We, we have our child who's going off to college for the first time, and we were not prepared for that. We're going through some really difficult things in our marriage, and we just aren't prepared for this. Hey, you should come to our church. See, the expectation for so long has been that we want people to just come wander in. But the reason you came is because someone brought you. It might have been your parents from a really young age, but someone brought you. I would say that's probably true for 95% of the people in here. And there may be another 5% who just wandered in off the street one day and said, we're going to come to church. But for the majority of people in this place, you are here because someone invited you and loved you enough and cared about you enough to have a conversation and to say, hey, come join us. So, so really quickly, going, going back to those, I'm not from here, not going well, not prepared for. It's your cue. Listen as you're talking to people. Not going well, not from here, not prepared for. Hey, you should come to our church. Because we believe that we've found something in Jesus that has the power to change and heal a world that is broken. Do you believe that? Then let's go share it. And I want to ask you just to imagine for just a second. What would it be like? What would it look like if in 2018, every single person in this church invested and invited one person. What would it look like for their life? What would it mean for our church? What would it mean for our community and city in Tyler, Texas? What would it mean for this world? God's given you a voice. He's given you a platform to go and share him with a world that we believe needs him so badly. Father, today it is our prayer that in this place you will be glorified and uplifted in everything we do. Father, we want to be people who are obedient to you, but not just for the sake of the law, not just for the sake of the rule, but Father, we want to be formed by you and by your word and by your spirit to be a crucified person, a person who has literally died and been raised into new life. That's what we say we believe. That's what we profess. Father, help us to live like it, not out of obligation, but as a response to it. Father, from the incredible love that you showed us on the cross, giving your life to give us freedom and to set us free from the bondage of sin. Father, to forgive us. Father, we thank you. And Father, we pray that we would be formed into your image every single day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need anything this morning, if you have never walked through the water and into new life, we offer you that invitation to walk through the waters of baptism into new life. 
And if we could help you in any way in praying for you, whatever your need, we're going to have ministry staff. We're going to have shepherds around this auditorium in the back. I'll be down here. Whatever we can do to help you in any way, let us know that while we sing. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let your love increase. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Walls of pride and prejudice shall cease. When we are your instruments of peace. Where there is hatred, we will sow his love. Where there is injury, we will never judge. Where there is striving, we will speak his peace. To the people crying for relief, we will be his instruments of peace.